Welcome to the CSB SCB podcast, part of the Canadian Society for Biomechanics. We are your hosts and student representatives, Jackie Zare and Francie Onet. Welcome to episode eight of the CSB SCB podcast. Joining us today is Dr. Ryan Graham. Dr. Graham is an associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa, where he directs the Spine and Movement Biomechanics Lab. He further holds adjunct faculty appointments within the School of Kinesiology and Health Studies at Queen's University and the Department of Kinesiology and Health Sciences at the University of Waterloo. Dr. Graham completed two bachelor degrees, one in biology and another in physical and health education from Queen's University. He further completed his master's and PhD in biomechanics and ergonomics, both at Queen's University as well. In 2018, Dr. Graham was the recipient of the CSB David Winter Young Investigator Award for his early career research on whole body injury mechanisms related to instability, impaired neuromuscular control, and movement quality. And lastly, in collaboration with Dr. Daniel Benoit, Dr. Graham is co-chairing the upcoming North American Congress on Biomechanics Conference, which will be hosted in our nation's capital this summer. So, Dr. Graham, welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jackie and Frenzy, for having me. As mentioned in the intro, you are co-chairing the NACOP conference that will be hosted, hopefully in person, in Ottawa from August 21st to 25th uh, next year, 2022. And NACOP means that this is a joint event with both the Canadian and the American Society for Biomechanics meeting at the same time. So for everyone who has been to CSB meetings before, this one will likely be a bigger one. And the first question for you is, how does one become a conference chair? And have you done this, like organized a conference before? To be honest, I don't know if there's one standard approach, but for large conferences like this, you kind of bid on them or there's a bidding process. So in our case, we were approached by Ottawa Tourism back in 2015 by their team. They had seen a call for bids for ISB 2019 in Calgary. And so they contacted Dr. Benoit and myself uh, to be local champions for the bid to ISB. So we worked with the Ottawa tourism team for about, I don't know, a year, a year and a half to put together a large bid package. We submitted it to ISB and we were shortlisted for the 2019 conference. At that point, we traveled to Raleigh, North Carolina to the ASB meeting. Um, Dr. Benoit, myself and Teresa Gatto from Ottawa tourism and presented our bid to the ISB executive team. We thought we had a strong bid, but unfortunately lost out to uh, Dr. Herzog in the University of Calgary, um, who ended up hosting ISB and ASB in 2019. During the process, however, uh, we were contacted by Dr. Dickerson and Dr. Brown from the University of Waterloo and the University of Guelph, who are on the CSB executive, and they were looking for people to host NACOB. So we were invited to do that. And since we had already done a lot of the work, we thought that we might as well. So traditionally, NACOB would have been in 2020, I believe, since it should have been six years after WCB, which would have been the last NACOB in Boston. But since ASB was in Canada in 2019, all parties thought we should push it out to 2022. And here we are now about six years later. So this has been going on for a while and hopefully can host this in person. Well, yeah, so that's quite the process then, because we were talking about this before, how a conference takes like, yeah, two to five days, and then you've been working on this for several years to make it happen now. Yeah, it's been a, a long process. So hopefully, fingers crossed, it, it proceeds as planned. Yeah. 
That would be awesome. As the abstract deadline approaches, we were hoping to also learn a bit more about Ottawa and the conference webpage, nacop.org is up and we'll keep being updated as we get closer to the event. There's already some information on there about Ottawa and the conference venue in particular, but you have been living there yourself for a while now. And what do you personally like most about the city and what do you think can visitors look forward to? I mean, I'm personally really excited to host all our colleagues uh, and obviously Ottawa, our nation's capital. Part of what I really love about Ottawa is it has kind of a smaller town feel, but obviously in a big city. Ottawa is also very multicultural and fully bilingual. So on any street, you'll hear a good mix of French and English. The conference venue is the Shaw Center. So it's, it's a world-class conference center and it's right downtown right on the banks of the Rideau Canal, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, so longest skating rink in the world. And what makes it really unique is the conference center is joint to some of the main hotels, but within walking distance, delegates could go to almost all of Canada's national museums, tour Parliament Hill, and check out many exciting kind of neighborhoods, such as the Byward Market area, where there's kind of exciting restaurants and, and bars and different places to explore. Ottawa also has kind of world-class outdoor activities such as mountain biking, whitewater rafting, golfing, hiking. So I think, you know, our delegates should get to experience uh, a lot of what Canada really has to offer within one city. It's also a very safe city, so people can bring their families and explore and basically go wherever they want and, and feel safe doing it. Also, by now, all the keynote speakers for the conference have been confirmed. Could you tell us who they are and briefly what their respective lectures will be about. So we've secured what we think is kind of an excellent mix of keynote speakers across different expertise and areas. And while I'm sure their exact lectures and, and titles will kind of emerge as the conference approaches, uh, I can give a high level overview of their general research and their keynote lecture directions. First, uh, Dr. David Moore is from the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute. Uh, and he's a world leader in journology, and, and he's been the lead author on many major publications that you've probably read or seen, such as the Prisma Statement for Systematic Reviews and Meta-Analyses. And his talk will be on the quest for better behavior in science and, and something along these lines. Next, Dr. Katja Mombauer is the Canada Excellence Research Chair at the University of Waterloo in Human-Centered Robotics and Machine Intelligence, and her talk will be about her research in those areas. Dr. Karma Fouché is an MD-PhD from the University of Illinois at Chicago, and she is actually the chair of the EDI Committee of the Orthopedic Research Society in the United States. And she will talk uh, more on the clinical side about clinical biomechanics and, and using this type of research to improve patient outcomes. And finally, uh, Dr. Adam Douglas is the sports science and performance director for the Montreal Canadiens, which is obviously a very famous hockey club. Adam and I did our undergraduate degrees at Queen's together in physical and health education. Uh, and his talk will be kind of more applied on using technology as well as research to improve performance in high performance athletes. And aside from the keynotes, are there any other notable items on the conference program, like award sessions, receptions, etc.? For sure, we have kind of excellent symposia and workshops planned. And we've, we've gotten those and we've reviewed them and sent out uh, acceptances, or they should be sent out very soon. Um, so those should be released on the website. Yeah, we also have uh, the traditional ASB and CSB awards that would be given to new faculty, as well as some of the career awards. And there's also various awards that are open to all delegates that you can click or, or submit to when you submit your abstract. 
we have no doubt that the science is going to be excellent, but we're also really looking forward to hosting people for some of the non-scientific things that we have planned for the conference. One of the big exciting things we have planned is our opening reception was planned at the Museum of History in the Grand Hall. And so this is one of the most impressive indoor spaces in the country where delegates will get an introduction to the history, cultures, and beliefs of the First Peoples of Canada. And the room is filled with totem poles and various types of art. So it's a really exciting room for the delegates. The closing banquets at the Trillium Ballroom at the Shaw Centre. So that's on the top floor and it just has a wonderful view of downtown Ottawa as well as the Parliament buildings. So, so that should be nice as well. And together with the student committees and some of the other groups, we're also planning tons of exciting social activities that should accommodate our attendees, um, whether it's nightlife or going out to do various outdoor activities. So we should be able to offer kind of an excellent experience for the delegates. Before we move on to the different round of questions, do you have a concluding statement or maybe rather invitation statement for our listeners and those who are interested in attending the conference? We're very much looking forward to hosting everyone at the North American Congress on Biomechanics 2022 in Canada's capital on August 21st to 25th. Just a reminder that the abstract deadline is coming up and full details can be found on our website at nacob.org. Et maintenant en français, nous sommes impatients d'accueillir tout le monde au Congrès nord-américain sur la biomécanique 2022 dans la capitale du Canada du 21 au 25 août. Juste un rappel que la date limite pour soumettre tous les détails sont disponibles sur notre site web à l'adresse nacob.org. Merci. Thank you. Okay, so moving on to more research-related questions around your research program and how it's evolved so far. And like with some of our previous guests, your main playing field within biomechanics seems to be ergonomics research related to gait and load carriage, spine stability, exoskeletons, modeling and simulations, just to name a few general topics. A topic that has come up in a lot of your publications as of recently is related to movement screening and the evaluation of movement quality using these different analytical approaches, such as machine learning. And so given your more traditional ergonomics training and background, what was your professional pathway or journey per se to the use of machine learning as a tool in human movement research? My pathway really began with my recently graduated student, Dr. Gwyneth Ross. Uh, she just received her PhD a couple weeks ago, I guess now. So back when Gwyn was a master's student at Queen's, uh, co-supervised by Dr. Stephen Fisher and myself, she was given access to, to a huge database of movement screening data from professional athletes and novice athletes from Modus Global. And this is a high performance testing company that she had previously worked with in Florida. We started looking at the data set and after not too much time, we kind of realized we needed maybe better ways to objectively dig into the data and to, to really look at patterns and to make classifications. And so at that time, Nico Troje was at Queens, who, who is an expert in pattern recognition using different types of machine learning as well. And we started working and learning from him on how to kind of apply these techniques to our data sets. And so since then, you know, we've been working through it and learning as we go. I've been lucky to have some really talented students and postdocs, uh, such as Dr. Allison Cloutier, as well as some close collaborators, such as Adrian Chan at Carleton. And, you know, through our collaborations, we've continue to build knowledge and, and learn, and, and we're still doing so as we go. In 2018, I believe there was a, a conference abstract that your group presented that compared different machine learning and deep neural network classifiers that can be used to reconstruct joint center trajectories from 3D motion capture data. And so to get us started and to familiarize ourselves with the tools that you use, 
We heard a lot about deep neural network approaches from Dr. Scott Selby, but can you perhaps explain how machine learning classifiers used on motion capture data are similar and then perhaps different to the deep neural network classifiers? I guess at a simple or a high level, machine learning classifiers are, are really just algorithms as well as models that are able to make data-driven decisions without being explicitly programmed to do so. So they learn patterns from data based on how you train them, or in some cases, they, they can learn patterns that they're not given. And neural networks are really a subset of machine learning classifiers, of which deep neural networks are kind of a further subset where you have more than one hidden layer. So they're, they're deeper, they have more layers. In our research, we've used kind of many different types of machine learning uh, classifiers, such as sport vector machines, k-nearest neighbors, linear discriminant analysis, decision trees, uh, naive Bayes regressions, as well as neural networks. And in terms of some of the neural networks we've used, we've done some work with recurrent networks, which uh, I can expand on in a little bit, as well as convolutional neural networks, which would be similar to what uh, Scott Selby would have talked about when interpreting images to do markerless motion capture. So each classifier is obviously slightly different, and it, it's really hard to say which is best because there's kind of trade-offs in how they're used. And there's some different theories for this, such as the no free lunch theorem. But what we typically try to do is we try out multiple classifiers to determine which are best for different situations. And then, you know, we can refine and go from there. One benefit of using deep neural networks is that because they have more layers, they're able to do some of like the feature extraction uh, within the neural network. So they can figure out some of these important patterns uh, as part of this overall process. Whereas for some of the more classical machine learning algorithms, you need to interpret kind of like a feature selection step. This can be done using either some feature selection methods. You can use something like principal component analysis to extract scores or to reduce the data, or you could use kind of your domain knowledge to manually pick what you would want to go into it. So that's some of the differences uh, about how they work. And so I guess more specific to your own research, are there specific machine learning classifiers that your group uses extensively or, or less to an extent? And specifically, how do they work? Yeah, so two of the methods that we've used I guess in a lot of different cases, for example, for some of Quinn's work on movement screening or Matt's work with the military is linear discriminant analysis. This is nice because it's relatively straightforward and the results are interpretable. So, I mean, as the name denotes, it's, it's a linear classifier and it looks to create a, a linear function that separates classes that maximizes the distance between the group means and minimizes the scatter within each group. And so, when we apply this to time series data, we normally use principal component analysis to extract meaningful data from that or, or major modes of variation. Uh, we use that as data reduction, and then we put the PC scores into the LDA functions. And that allows us to really classify and score people, but also interpret what that means. So how does someone move different between the two classes, for example? Recently, we've started to use different types of neural networks. Um, one that we use is called long short-term memory. And so obviously this is a little bit more complicated to describe uh, and the results are harder to interpret because you don't really know in 100% of the cases why things are being classified as one, one direction or the other. But to keep it at a high level, these LSTMs are a type of recurrent neural network, recurrent in that it has a feed forward and a feedback mechanism. This is important. We know that in previous data influence later data points. And so this helps us in this way. 
LSTM though is a little bit different from your typical recurrent network because it has memory, which allows it to retain important information across longer periods of time and forget less important information. And so you don't lose important or pertinent information, um, which can sometimes happen in other cases. These are really good for time series data um, because we know that all the data points are related to each other. And so these are just a couple examples of what we use in different cases, but again, it's useful to try out different types of classifiers and to sometimes pick the one that, that works the best, that's the easiest to interpret or, or takes the, less, the least amount of computational power. Are the same classifiers that perform best on the motion capture data also used for classification of IMU data that you've collected and analyzed, or they, do they tend to be different? So, so far in Gwyn's, some of her latest work, even though we use IMU data, the similar types of classifiers have, have worked well. So we might have to do some different pre-processing or, or do some small changes into how we, we set up the data. But in general, LSTM to do activity classification, for example, or PCA plus LDA to classify or to separate groups ha have worked well in both cases. So knowing a little bit more about some of these tools and techniques in your lab, Let's discuss what your group uses them for. And so task recognition is something that's been highlighted in the, in the title of a lot of your publications. And so why is automatic task recognition interesting or what scenarios is it useful for or even required? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, in, in our work, we're most interested in task recognition so that we could continuously perhaps collect data and then to automatically segment it into smaller chunks. This is especially important in field work or if we're collecting continuous IMU data from someone in the wild, we would kind of want to know what they're doing before we can dig into that and to make some further classifications or decisions about, I don't know, movement quality or, or something like this. So for example, you, you perhaps heard Victor Chan, one of my PhD students, talk about his work at the CREA-MSD webinar. And really what he's interested in is developing methods for detecting fatigue-related changes in movement patterns in workplaces, which could then increase the chance of developing, you know, a musculoskeletal disorder or an injury of some sort. So while he has shown that his methods can work at figuring out when people are changing their movement patterns as they fatigue, so far we, we know what they're doing, and then we can see how those changes happen over time. And so as part of his bigger framework, he ideally wants to be able to break down continuous data into a smaller subset of tasks, such as, I don't know, lifting or pushing or pulling. And then he can layer on some additional levels to really understand what's going on within those movements over time. On a similar note, uh, my PhD student, Matt Maver, his work is, is with the Canadian Armed Forces. And so we've collected a lot of data from them uh, in the lab or in the field using full body IMU suits and these types of things. But they also have sensors that they can wear, just like one IMU sensor with GPS. And so what we can do in that case is we can ideally train different algorithms to recognize the tasks that they're doing based on the full body data that we know. And then we could have them go out in more realistic scenarios and try to break down what they're doing and then to, again, come back and, and layer on additional steps. So for us, activity recognition is, is interesting to break down these larger data sets in the wild to then dig into the data to, to try to make sense of those smaller chunks. So within or between these task performances, my understanding that you're further interested in the recognition of these particular movement features and the type of important movement features could of course depend on the task, but terms like variability and spatial temporal strategies and kinematics appear to come up quite a bit in this literature. And so are these the types of features that your lab group focuses on? And if so, how are they integrated or studied? And if not, what types of movement features are you guys most interested in? 
I think it depends on the the situation or, or who we're working with, um, whether it be our clinical partners or we're looking at sport or workplaces or the military again. But as you mentioned, looking at movement variability, local dynamic stability, coordination or continuous relative phase are, are some of the features that we think there's meaningful information within them. So we will extract those as part of other perhaps more traditional variables and then you know maybe use those as input to some classifier to then make some decision based on a given goal. So for sure those are things that you know we have studied in the past and we continue to to do so. So we think they're important uh, for various different reasons, but we're continuously kind of building out and interpreting what those mean in different cases. Yeah, a common challenge at least for people who may be less familiar with these continuous measures based off the variability features is that some of the outputs can be really abstract and difficult to interpret. So generally speaking, how does your group draw meaning from these tools? Is it their ability to dissociate between groups or what other benefits are gained? I guess I can kind of break that down into to two parts. So we do a lot of pattern recognition or classification work with PCA as an example, which we use as a tool for data reduction, but really also to recognize key features or patterns within large data sets. So while this was traditionally perhaps more difficult to interpret, uh, while I was at Queen's, I did some work with doctors Scott Brandon and, and Kevin Deluzio, and we published a paper on how to interpret uh, principal components in biomechanics. And so we're pretty confident that now we're able to understand what we're extracting and get meaningful information from that. On the other side, with dynamical systems methods, as you mentioned, for example, Lyapunov exponents or something else, you're right that they're a bit more black box and you put in a whole bunch of time series information, you might get out a number that might mean something related to more or less variability or or tighter or looser control of movements or, or something along these lines. And so while they've been black box or while they might be black box, we've done a whole bunch of work over time to try and really calculate these, for example, from spine movements and to relate them to something that we might know is more related to the mechanics, such as joint rotational stiffness, published a paper with with Dr. Brown. One of my students went to VU Amsterdam to collect some data with Dr. Van Dien uh, relating our spine control metrics to systems identification. And so the more we've kind of dug into this and, and related it to other variables, it's it's really increased our confidence that we can we know a little bit more about what we're measuring, how the outputs relate to other biomechanical variables, how they might change based on an experimental modification or between different groups. Another thing as part of that is that you've probably seen this before that you can get pretty different numbers in some of these analyses if you change how you create a state space or you change certain parameters within it. And so we've also been cognizant and we've been you know, very aware that we use the same sorts of approaches across all our studies so that we have some some understanding of what we're measuring, we can compare it to our previous research. And and then again, that helps us to make it a little bit more interpretable, as you said. So once we get those numbers, we're confident, then for sure we could use them to classify groups or to to layer on some additional types of analyses as we've talked. More along the lines of maybe how how do you use the the classes that you find or like these movement features? And do you have an example, like what might be one of the consequences, for example, one question that you could answer, or then if you find a greater variability in a movement pattern or a smaller one, is there, what happens after that? Yeah, so I guess I can give kind of two examples, one related more to how we use PCA with LVA related to movement variability, 
and then I can follow up a little bit with something more related to the dynamical systems methods. So one example of how we use PCA to look at variability and movements, and then we layer on linear discriminant analysis is again, coming back a little bit to some of our work with the, the armed forces. So looking at a specific question, we want to really understand how movement changes in this population in response to various demographic factors, such as male versus female, um, someone who's large versus small, their anthropometrics experience, as well as operational factors. So body-borne loads, if they wear armor, backpacks, and, and these different things. And so part of this is to really understand what are the trade-offs between protection. So if you, you give them more armor, that's good if they they'll be safer in, in certain cases, but how does that affect their mobility or their susceptibility to musculoskeletal injury and these types of things? And so in this case, we're able to collect movement data from as many people as we can uh, using, for example, an IMU suit that, that we've validated and done some work on. We can then use PCA to extract what are the major modes of variation and how that changes. And then LDA to see, for example, how does movement change along some discriminant functions, such as as you increase load, how's those, how does their movement change? What's nice about this approach is we don't need to collect 60 different loads and then assess everything. We can collect you know, four different classes. We can see how these functions discriminate between the groups, and then we can kind of morph the movements along these functions and, and look at these kind of intermediate levels to see continuously what are the trade-offs and we can move these around it. And, and that's really useful in our case. In terms of something like local dynamic stability. We haven't yet gotten into using those classes to then drive a specific type of treatment or something else, but I can, thinking about some of the literature I've read, a few years ago, Dr. Van Dien published uh, a clinical commentary in JOSBT with Dr. Hodges and Linda Van Dillen and some of these other people, which I think gives a bit of a nice framework for doing this, where they talk about if someone has is at one end of the spectrum, maybe you can offer them a certain type of treatment or, or on the other end. While that's something that we, we would like to get to at some point, we need big enough data sets that we're confident in to do that. And so a lot of the work that our lab's been doing so far is really focused on, can we calculate these measures in a valid or reliable way in the clinic or in the wild? So we've done this with wearable sensors or depth cameras, and we've really focused in on how good uh, are the results that we can get? How reliable are they within or between days? And then eventually, once once we're confident, then we can roll that out and start to collect these bigger data sets to get into phenotyping or clustering. Just out of curiosity for me now, since you brought up the IMU suit, do you know how many sensors do you have on there? Yeah, so the we've been using the XN's full body suit for our, our military work. And so it has 17 different IMU sensors in it, which was really nice for our military work because it's hard to collect optical motion capture when they're wearing fatigues and armor and helmet and everything else. So Matt did a whole bunch of work. Uh, his first study for his PhD was really validating this for all the types of movements we want to look at. And so we're confident the results actually look really good. And so now we're able to go out in the, in the wild a little bit more in the field and, and look at how different soldiers move in pairs or some of these other things as well. So. That's obviously really useful, um, but again, it, it is a big data collection, which is yeah. why we, we want to see ways we can interpret a lot more than collecting data on everyone. To end this section with a bigger picture question, these techniques and classifiers, especially for the scoring of movement quality, can be really impactful for removing observer bias and accelerating data-driven science. How do you envision this type of data science evolving in human movement research? 
I guess data-driven science and decision-making is, is really something that our team strives for. And that's kind of what led us down this route of combining biomechanical data and methods with data science to be able to make these decisions. That's something we, you know, we're passionate about and that we try, try to make sure we do a good job at, but obviously it, it takes a long time to make sure you're, you're confident. Using the movement quality example that you provided, we strongly feel that, you know, if we can objectively examine movement competency and create more kind of athlete specific or group specific scoring criteria as an example. So for example, prepubescent girls who play soccer and we can be more specific, then maybe we'll be able to better map or detect correlations between competency and injury risk rather than, for example, across larger populations. And so obviously with changes to technology, you can collect so much stuff with a video camera or markerless technology or wearable sensors. We're going to see kind of larger and larger data sets. And this is obviously going to, it's going to necessitate the need for new techniques to ingest and to make sense of it. And so I really think that our field is going to go this way, but on the flip side, we still really think it's important to have kind of a solid foundation in biomechanics and to to know what you're putting into these, because obviously you need to be doing something strong and, and really knowing what you are collecting the data for or why to then make the outputs the most kind of interpretable as well as impactful in the long run. So then for the next group of questions, they're, uh, they're, they're less related to the specific research that you've done or are still doing, but rather how you started your research program and attained funding from large Canadian agencies. And your first tenure track faculty appointment was at Nipissing University, which is located in North Bay, Ontario. You started this faculty position in your biomechanics and ergonomics laboratory in 2012. Then you received your first NSERC discovery grant in 2014. But prior to receiving this big grant and this federal funding, were there any smaller and perhaps less well-known funding sources that helped you launch your lab? aside from the startup fund that you probably had. Yeah, so thanks for giving me the chance to say thank you to a few people here. So one grant that I did receive right at the start of my career was from Cree MSD. So Dr. Callahan gave me a call one day and he said that I would be given kind of this new faculty C grant, which was obviously exciting and, and unexpected. So that was really helpful at kickstarting my career because my startup wasn't significant at, at a small university. So this enabled me to buy an electromagnetic tracking system actually to start doing biomechanics research and looking at spine biomechanics before any of my other things, uh, bigger grants kicked in. So I'm very grateful to both CreeMSD and Dr. Callahan for that because it, it gave me kind of that kickstart that I, that I really needed at that time. When it comes to managing your funding, can you name up to three things or positions as in like people or staff you would hire that you think is worth investing in early when starting your lab? Yeah, this not an easy question, I guess, but I started thinking around, you know, what I would do in a new position again. And I think when everyone gets hired, they want to have the, the latest, greatest technology or tools, and they want to buy what they have so they can do all sorts of important research. But I think when you're getting started, it's, it's really important to save as much money you can. Um, sometimes it's few and far between and to, to keep it close to you and then to slowly learn where you might have the biggest impact. And so 
getting started, depending on how your funding package looks, uh, it's for different graduate students. It's it's different at every university. At University of Ottawa, we're pretty lucky, but I would use my funds for you know maybe getting a master's student or getting some people to really get started. Because in my case, if I didn't have strong master's and undergrad students, for example, Gwyneth or Matt or Eric Boudin, then I couldn't have kickstarted my career and ended up where I am. So you know, using funds for people, I think is a smart way to do it. If I started my lab now with more money, then for sure getting, you know, postdocs or getting some, some senior research help would be very useful. But I think it really depends on where you're at when you start. But for sure, using money for people is never a bad thing. Another large funding source that you attained was CFI, which is the Canadian Foundation for Innovation and is used for the cost of laboratory infrastructure. And at that time, do you remember what equipment you first purchased with that grant? Because when I went to Nipissing, they had built us a brand new building, but it was somewhat empty. Uh, I needed to use a CFI to basically create more or less a biomechanics lab. So at that time, we used the funds to purchase a Qualysis motion capture system, a wireless EMG system from Delsys, and then we had some different force equipment, such as load cells, and, and we had a couple existing force plates. But really, that was the first big biomechanics lab ever, so we had to get kind of the traditional things that that then really allowed you to, to do biomechanics, so that was what it was for. Prior to the infrastructure grant, did you share equipment, or what equipment did you use to collect your first few studies in your new lab? Yeah, so when I went, the other biomechanist was Dr. Dean Hay, and he had a few force plates because he did lower body biomechanics. But really, that's pretty much all we had. So in the first little bit, I got started, and I started writing grants to fill out a new a new lab. And as I mentioned before, the only other piece of equipment that we had was uh, that Ascension electromagnetic system and that I was able to secure with CREMSD funding. And so the first study that I did in the lab was was actually in collaboration with Dr. Sam Howard. And we used those sensors to look at changes in if we position the sensors differently along the spine or constrain the pelvis differently, how would that affect local dynamic stability during trunk movements? And so some of our first studies, we didn't have all of these different things, but we made it work with, with the resources that, that we had. So with respect to your preparation of your grant proposals, were there writing or review resources either at Nipissing or now at the University of Ottawa that you took advantage of? And if so, how did they help you out? Uh, at Nipissing, we had some a little bit of resources through the Academic and Research Services Office, but that was mostly reviewing kind of just the overall, does it fit the guidelines and the processes and these types of things. What I really used is colleagues, so different people within CSB that you know I can talk a bit more about uh, in a couple of minutes. Here at UOttawa, we're actually very lucky. So we have really good uh, research support through our faculty's research office. And so I need to, to use this time to point out Dr. Anne-Marie Gagnon. Um, she's a senior research advisor in our faculty, and she's really super actively involved in helping us craft and write our grants and review them. And, and she's really involved in all steps of the process. And so that's really been you know, very, very helpful for me. She understands the strategic importance of certain things that you say and how they fit. And so that's been helpful at getting my latest NSERC, uh, my university research share, my Ontario Early Researcher Award, and various contracts as well. So if you have these types of people available within your faculty or within your university, I would strongly advise it because it's been 
extremely helpful for me as well as others in our school and faculty. And last question, do you have any general tips for young faculty or aspiring faculty to start their lab for attaining that funding? So obviously this is a, a CSV podcast. I'd strongly recommend using the, the strong community that we have, as well as the mentors that we're, current, we're surrounded by. So, you know, obviously when I first started, I had support from my PhD supervisor, Dr. Joan Stevenson, but also early collaborators such as, you know, Dr. Howarth or Steve Brown, as I mentioned. Uh, but also from other more senior researchers in CSB, such as Dr. Callahan or Dr. Peter Keir, who, who had been involved in NSERC committees and to really understand the process. So, you know, at a time when I started at a small university, using the resources for our colleagues who really want to help us, I, I would re- definitely recommend that. And now that, you know, I'm in a more mid-career, I try to work hard to kind of pay that forward and mentor my trainees, but also new faculty. And again, I would be open to providing kind of advice to any other people if they ever wanted it. So I'm available. When you first get started and you have to write a program grant and you need to synthesize all of your ideas, I've been through it. You second guess yourself. You're not sure what you're putting down. Sometimes you think you're crazy, but you know, using the people around you to get help and to have them read it and to make sure it's coherent is very, very helpful. It was for me. And you know, I'm happy to, to help out anyone I can. Even. To end this episode, we have five rapid fire questions for you. And please try to answer each question in one sentence or less. Question number one, with another four to five months of potentially cold weather ahead of us, what are some activities that you like to do in the winter? Obviously, we know cold weather in Ottawa. And really what we like to do in the winter with my family is to get outside, to go to the cottage, go downhill skiing, build hockey rinks, and do all of the things that that we all like to do in Canada growing up. So that would be the same for us. Question number two, what was your first job? Can be academic or ever? I guess my first real job, which is, I guess, pretty close to my family, is after my undergrad degree, uh, we went and lived in Taiwan for a year and taught English. So um, wow. That's something that is close for our family and the country. Question number three, what is one larger research question that you would like answered before you retire in an ideal world, maybe? This is a tough one. Uh, This isn't really a specific question, but I guess with all of the research that many of us have been doing, looking at low back pain and low back disorders over time, I hope that kind of one day we can use all of these things and and put them together to reduce the overall kind of burden. Question number four, is there anything in your career or training that you would do over? Yeah, I've thought a lot about this over time. And while I've made lots of mistakes, I don't think I really regret anything. And so I wouldn't redo any, anything. I think they all kind of make you who you are and and you use those experiences moving forward. That's amazing. (laughs) Question number five. What would you be if you had not become a professor? Uh, realistically, when I went to undergrad, I wanted to be a gym teacher. So, so maybe that. Ideally, if I could, I would like to be a professional golfer because I would like to do that every day. That concludes our eighth episode with Dr. Ryan Graham. Dr. Graham, thank you again for joining us. Thank you both. In our next episode, we'll be speaking with Dr. Cheryl Cozy from Dalhousie University about joint biomechanics related to osteoarthritis. Remember, if you have any specific questions for our next guest, please feel free to email us. Our email address is students at csb-scb.com. <laughs>